trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. You have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast bringing you big ideas from Tasmania. We proudly bring you science, technology, engineering and maths content and today we're putting the E in STEM, talking about engineering. Our show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station, so head to edgeradio.org.au for more information about the things that they're doing lately. My name is Dr. Neve Chapman and I'm joined by our engineering expert co-host, Dr. Sarah Lydon. And I'd like to begin today's episodes by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawa and Pakana people as we record on Lutruwita. And I also acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where you are listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. So, Sarah, you always bring us delightful engineering content. Can you tell us a little bit more about our expert guest today and the topic we'll be discussing? Today's guest is Phil Durbin from Finite Elements. Finite Elements is a Tasmanian engineering company with expertise in the application of finite element analysis and computational fluid dynamics simulation to support technology and engineering projects. Phil has over 40 years experience in engineering and is going to be able to really share some interesting insights with us in terms of what finite element analysis is and about mechanical engineering. I'm very excited to hear about this because I have to admit that I have not heard of most of those terms before. (laughs) Welcome, Phil. Good evening. So to start with, Phil, can you tell us a little bit about what type of engineering work you do and what inspired you to become an engineer? I guess I'm what you would term mechanical engineer. Well, that's what I studied at university. And uh, why did I become an engineer? Because I was always fascinated with how things worked and building things like a lot of engineers probably. And um, I used to love to take things apart and hopefully get them back together and generally get them back together working again if they were broken. But um, And then I wanted to make things of my own, from my own imagination. Eventually, you get sick of... Um, making things in the garage that don't work and wondering why they don't work and think that uh, maybe I should understand a bit more. So you start reading and understanding. Eventually, you end up going to university and becoming um, an engineer, I suppose, because you're fascinated by all these sorts of things. So could you tell us a little bit now about what finite element analysis is and why it's important for engineering work? So the problem for engineers is they go to university, so they have to sit in a math course and they got bombarded with all this maths and more maths and more maths. And really, it's quite hard to understand, or at least to understand properly. And there's a lot of manipulation and mental gymnastics, which I actually find quite frustrating. You go from the pure theory to an end result, and if you take the mathematical path, it's a really constrained path, because unfortunately, maths is limited by the best mathematical models and equations that you can make at the time. And it's really nice to get rid of that middle bit. You've got the theory sorted out on one end. You've got the imagination going at the other. Wouldn't it be nice if somebody just did all that hard work math in the middle for you? And this is what these new simulation softwares like finite element analysis and computational fluid dynamics do for you. I mean, when I did uni, finite element analysis wasn't a thing. It's so long ago when dinosaurs roamed the Earth back in the um, 1980s that it was just something off at the edge. You were still, you know, doing computers with punch cards. But, of course, as I 
started work and I was doing, uh, I used to work for a company that made um, pollution control equipment for um, power stations. And some of the problems in there were quite complex, involving a lot of thermal and heat. And you can refer to tax and various approximate support, um, formula. But really, that was when I first got involved in the finite element analysis, when we had to find a company to assist us to make a model of the thermal expansion of what is essentially two big giant boxes, which collect all the uh, particulate emissions from the power stations, like big fabric filters. And that was my first exposure. From then, eventually, I got to a point where things I wanted to do, I couldn't do without that um, computer support and uh, really started to get abreast of this tool called finite element analysis. Put it in layman's terms, if you have a big object and you divide it into ever smaller parts until those parts are quite Small, and you can make relatively simple mathematical rules about each of the small parts in that big object. And then when you push on one side of the object and you resist it on the other side, the force gets transmitted through it in relation to all the little mathematical models for all the tiny little pieces that form the bigger of the whole. And that's what essentially the computer and finite element analysis does for you. Finite elements meaning finite little blocks, if you like, of of the object you're analysing and that process takes away all the complex mathematics and it also means that you can analyse things that you just can't analyse by using mathematical formula and um, there's no better example than this is at our own zinc work where one of the older um, sheds for concentrate is these two parabolic concrete halves Firing. They must be about 15 metres in the air and they lean together in a perfect parabola because back in the day, mathematically, that's what you could do and now you've got it right. In this modern day of finite element analysis, you can change those shapes to something more appropriate or achieve something different or, you know, be better in wind or you can, you can transform it to whatever you like and know that it's going to work or what actually it won't. And um, the other interesting thing, and I sometimes call it reading the tea leaves or a life of colour because when you analyse something and you've all seen these computer plots of stresses or something else or in electrical engineering voltages or across a you know a plate or something you've got these colours and the colours feed back and tell you how it's behaving it lets you see into what is there and when you can see in what's there you can then start to recognise how you could make changes, what you could do to improve things. And it lets you see into a world that is basically invisible. And I guess that's what I find fascinating. And the key to it all then is if you actually understand some of the basics of the theory of the start of the uh, physical and engineering equations, and then you see the colours, the plots, what's going on inside the object you're looking at, you start to understand why it is and why that happened and why the plot looks like it does. And then you've got a basis on which you can make change. Or if you start being inventive or want to be explorative, you can tweak things and go, I wonder what if I do this? Because intuition or my engineering training tells me that if I did this, maybe that would happen. And that's really what I'm looking for. So you can test it. Wow, what a tool for exploration.
finally engineers aren't constrained to a piece of paper and a big calculator. They've got this great device that lets them explore a hidden world. So that's what I found fascinating about it. That sounds excellent. Really good description. I really like that it started off with um, you talking about not really enjoying or finding the treasury of maths a little bit tedious, but that you're a very Mm. creative person and having that, it sounds like this computer tool has essentially allowed for that creativity and imagination alongside all the theory that you've learned to play around um, around the edges and discover new possibilities rather than just relying on what we business as usual because we know it works um, so, and it's really great to hear how those tools emerged after you were studying and then became part of your reality of, of daily working really awesome so we're going to be talking to you more in just a moment Phil, about the work that you've been doing through engineering and your extensive career to date. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, folks. Stay with us for part two and we'll be talking more to Phil. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we are talking about finite element analysis and mechanical engineering. My name is Dr. Sarah Lydon, and I'm joined by Dr. Neve Chapman, along with our expert guest, Phil Durbin. So, Phil, in this next segment, we like to go into a bit more depth in an interesting project that our guests have worked on before. So, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the Deep Sea Challenger project and the engineering work that you did in this project. Yeah, Deep Sea Challenger, wow. A man that wants to go to the bottom of the ocean, do or die. And I guess die is the operative word here because nobody wants a famous dead film director, Jim Cameron, on the bottom of their resume. You'd much rather he came back alive. So quite a pressuring sort of job. But um, also it's a boy's own project or a girl's own project for that matter. The... um, it's just exciting because very rarely do you get the opportunity to work on something like that. Besides the fact that it's a huge challenge, I suppose the stakes are actually quite high because at the end you've got a, a dead man on the bottom of the ocean if you don't get it right. And not a lot of time are we connected to that outcome. You know, we have rules, regulations, standards and all these things which we adhere to and society agrees is suitable and you know you've done the right thing but when you want to do what he wanted to do you've got to take all those standards and basically toss them out of the window because you can't get to the bottom of the ocean if you sign up to those standards because their safety factors are all too high and they're all limited in their um, in their scope so then comes both a mix of an inventive process to overcome the difficulties you find and huge amounts of simulation to back up that process and those ideas so that you can A, be sure that what you eventually come up with will work and B, all the bad ideas can get cut before you spend too much money on them and go too far down the wrong track. So it's uh, quite a challenging place to be and it's not a very comfortable place for some engineers and... um, because they like more rigor and more, um, they, they like they like things to be more obvious. It's more black and white. Such a project is a is a very grey project because whilst the end job is to get to the deepest part of the earth, eleven kilometres deep, and get back and film stuff while you're down there and do a bit of science, it's um, 
challenging, like I said, when you know that the guy's life is on the line and really there's very little guidance or textbooks that you can turn to. In fact, there aren't any. You've got to have a good understanding of the basic principles of engineering and you've got to be able to then advance those principles and take them somewhere. A lot of what you see on the Deep Sea Challenger underwent a process of simulation and that simulation we have both used FBA finite element analysis which is looking at stresses and strains and computational fluid dynamics where you're looking at fluid flows over the object to make sure that when you're down there it's actually going to drive forward because it can explore and move at a number of knots around the bottom of the ocean and also you want to make sure that in its descent, it will go to the bottom of the ocean and come back up. Uh, interesting enough, it would go down okay, but coming back up, it was completely unstable. And we could show that through um, our computational fluid dynamics, and it forced us to change the shape of it to improve that and also to add some little things to control the ascent. But things that you wouldn't think of, when you're exploring the frontiers, and I like to look at these simulation technologies as uh, like a compass that can indicate the way. You look at the landscape, you see the mountains and the valleys, you want to get from A to B, you choose your route carefully, you can find a way through. And that's what these tools do for you. If you've got an inventive mind and a purpose, these tools are going to help you get there. I mean, things, for instance, like the submarine's about seven metres long, and it shrinks a full 70 millimetres before it gets to the bottom. So when you talk stress and strain to people and you talk deflection, you very rarely see any meaningful deflection in life. You know, you everything flexes on your car, but you don't notice it. 70 millimetres worth of deflection, shrinkage in length, it's really quite visible. And if you mix your materials, let's say you put a mixture of steel and then the thing comes back to the surface because of this syntactic foam, which is a mixture of some epoxy and some little hollow glass spheres and some various um, bits of Kevlar to help it have toughness. The two of them have vastly different um, Young's modulus and they're different in their springiness. So if you put them together and then put them uh, through that pressure down the bottom, they'll both contract at different rates. And if you don't make allowances for that, they'll push against each other and just break. So imagine you've gone to the bottom of the ocean and your syntactic foam, which is what gets you back to the surface, it gets too pressed. The bolt you've put through it is not changed at the same pressure and the same rate as the uh, foam, and it breaks the foam in two, and that's the end of your buoyancy. It's floated off into the ether, and um, halfway back up, you discover your new tree buoyance, and you're still down at 5,000 metres. You're going to be there forever. <laughs> not a good look. That's not a good look at all. I really um, enjoyed your storytelling there, Phil, of like throwing out the rule book essentially and like there are no safety measures for undertaking that kind of task. And I'd read that, uh, you know, figuring out all of the different ways the variables needed to be considered for this particular problem of getting, working with James Cameron to get to the bottom of the sea and back up again took six years. But what... I really enjoyed hearing there was the different materials and just all of the, that sounds like a fairly you know complex objective first off, getting to the bottom and the top again, um, intact. But once you start considering all the different types of materials that you'd use and the speed and the different equipment you're going to bring down, could you tell me a little bit about what made you the best person to work on this project, but also what kind of team did you work on to get to the end point? A very interesting process. First of all, yes, it did take six years. The design process 
started was very slow. I probably came in uh, about, say, in the four-year mark because they were just tossing around ideas between Jim Cameron and Friends of Ours One Elm. And then it got to the point where they realised they needed some serious engineering and I just happened to know Ron from previous life. And that's how we managed to get the work, just luck, really. And it started very simply on trying to engineer the... Uh, the pilot capsule that he went down in. Now, I'd say fairly simply because what he went down in is a 1.2 metre diameter sphere of gum, essentially a gun barrel steel in a roughly spherical shape. Pretty cramped in there for somebody who's six foot one tall, which is Jim Cameron is. Sort of grew from there. Ansual amount of engineering, simple engineering in that sphere. It's just, a, it's just as simple as the um, you bolt the hatch and you go to the bottom of the ocean everything distorts you come back up will the hatch come back out again because the hatch is a taper metal metal seal with a little bit of an o-ring in there as well it's quite conceivable that the hatch gets stuck and in fact on the russian nearest of submersibles they do sometimes get a bit sticky and they need a bit of a tap to get them open simulation we could show that if we didn't get the angle exactly right if we didn't balance the various load paths through the uh, way that the hatch went in that it would get stuck so that's one of the things where simulation helps. You asked me about the team. So out of the whole team, nobody's ever designed a submarine before. And the reason for that is that Jim Cameron didn't want any preconceived notions brought to the table. I love that. About, that's brilliant. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Because it's, it's, it's amazing how much preconceived notion always arrives. So we had a fresh sheet of paper. And naturally enough, there was a lot of looking around. A lot of the team came from uh, a movie star background, which is interesting in itself. So working with movie people, so the, the, the last part of the project was done in about a year flat. Once we had the, once we knew we could make a, a foam, that, a, a flotation foam that wasn't going to crush at the bottom of the ocean and would come back, which nobody had done before. And once we had the pilot sphere tested, in a big um, special defence facility tank in the US, we knew we had a project we could go forward with. From that point in time, it only took a year to do the rest of the whole thing, which is extraordinary in itself. A large amount of the team were assembled from film industry. People, because Jim Cameron is into his underwater, he's done a lot of underwater expeditions, so he's got camera people and sand people and diving people that know about electrical things, electronics underwater. They know about what's required for diving and all the um, rebreather systems and everything. So those people are there. There are a number of other fairly young engineers, I suppose. And so then my job in that came not only to hold, you know, to look after the simulation of everything and make sure that what we were doing was going to stay together, but also to help guide those people towards their goals and to achieve outcomes and if they got stuck to say well maybe we need to change direction because we haven't achieved what we want to achieve and one of the key things about that was well, a number of key things but one of the key things is that in such a project if you want to parallel stream things and you can imagine to do it all in a year you've got to parallel stream it you have to come up with a design that is modular by nature what i would call a, a plug and play design where each part has an interface to another part, be it by plug, like in an electrical connection, or be it by a physical connection, by bolts or other means. 
whereby you can develop each of the parts separately and if one part's slowing down it doesn't stop the development of the other part but their interconnection is known. To do that is quite an interesting conceptual project in the mind. Sounds like actually quite a creative process that just has this engineering framework that you've learned, um, which I, yeah, I really resonate with. Listeners, I hope you're enjoying the show as much as me. Well, stick with us and we'll be talking more to Phil in part three. You're listening to That's What I Call Science and we're talking today about mechanical engineering and finite element analysis. My name is Sarah Lydon and I'm joined by Neve Chapman along with our expert guest Phil Durbin. So Phil, in the last segment you told us a lot about the Deep Sea Challenger project which you worked on and I understand that that was a very kind of global project in terms of lots of contributors spread out across the world. What challenges did you face in contributing to such a, a global project from Tassie? Well, I spent a lot of time on an aeroplane to Sydney, which is where most of the project team was. And the uh, rest of the time was Benson Zoom meetings, or the equivalent of, like this, with maybe a few participants, but quite often with quite a lot. In terms of challenges, it really wasn't that hard. I mean, this modern computer generation, we've got the internet, it's easy to transfer information and facts and models and have dialogue show things on screen, discuss. It's really pretty much almost like being in the same room. Not quite. In terms of those challenges, not much. It was it was pretty good. Most of the project was done in Australia. There was a very small amount done in the US. And in the end result, Jim Cameron came to Australia for the last month of the project anyways, which made it um, a bit simpler. Really, I have to say, the challenges weren't that high, and one of the reasons the challenges weren't that high is when you go to a manufacturer, say, to manufacture the forged um, sphere that he gets into, the people who are doing the forging, they're all really excited about the project. All the companies that came on board to manufacture components, some of which, they'd, you know, in, in ways they'd never manufactured before because this is all a new design and um, new standards maybe even of accuracy to what they've done. For instance, on the itself it has to be within a tolerance of a millimeter on the inside otherwise it risks um, collapse but um, so they're all really excited to work on it and because they're really excited to work on it they're also really engaged and so the ideas flowed very freely so if any tension came out of it it was probably due to the ridiculous time frame because these guys that work in the film industry it's a real eye-opener they work like dogs until the uh, till the film's in the can and then they just go off and have a big rest for six months and they're completely burned out and that's the way they run the project it's not a sustainable way for a long period of life but boy it gets a lot done in a short period of time and the interesting thing is that the whole cost of the project was just a fraction of the cost that other underwater peoples and institutions have spent to do one fraction of as much so when you have a small team that is really engaged and they're all working together, what can be achieved is just extraordinary. So in terms of challenges, not a lot. The people that couldn't hack the pace sort of disappeared along the wayside. Uh, and there were a few of them. So the people that were on the project were really engaged and really motivated. So in that sense, it was really good. Okay, so sounds like not so much challenges, but more opportunities for really engaged people to 
contribute to this project. And I think that the key is the opportunity to engage people and therefore all the discussions you have on the project are about that opportunity to engage them rather than criticise ways for going forward. Everybody's looking to improve on the outcome with, with no blame, if you like. And um, the great thing about having no budget, which we did, we had a budget, but the great thing about not having to worry about the budget and worrying about the outcomes and being able to change tack if the outcome wasn't going to happen, was that it fosters that ability to have that innovative methodology. And the the interesting result is that it's actually cheaper to do that than worry about the money, within reason, of course. So, Phil, you've given us a really good example of how computational fluid dynamics and finite element analysis have been used in the Deep Sea Challenger project. Um, But could you give us, our listeners, a bit of insight into some other uses of the software? So what other kinds of problems could it be used in? There is pretty much nothing in life that we use or touch that hasn't been subjected to an FEA or a CSC process, whether it's the electronics on the board in your computer, the aircraft you fly in, or the jet motor that's driving it. It's been used absolutely everywhere. And if you look at all the recent games, and let's say in the last 20 years, and more specifically probably in the last 10, with the massive availability and increase in computing power, the ability to make large change in everything we see and touch has been extraordinary. So I don't think there's any part of life you couldn't say it hasn't touched. Electric cars, everything. And as I said, aeroplanes, new electric aeroplanes, anything anything that you can think of, right down to the Dyson hairdryer that you use for your hair or your vacuum, it's all based with either CSD or FEA as underlying its development in some way, shape or form to improve it, give it better efficiency, something like that. That's wonderful to hear, Phil, and a great way to round off our show where it talks about the really far-reaching this this technology has been in the field of engineering but also in the way that we interact with so many things in our daily life and to hear firsthand from you about the potential that this has had and such an exciting project has been really wonderful so thanks so much for coming on the show and thank you Sarah for organizing another wonderful engineering episode you are really fantastic at finding wonderful guests in Tasmania for us to talk to and thank you listeners for listening to that's what I call science we love bringing you science related content and hope you enjoyed the show do remember that you can find all of our previous engineering episodes by going to thatscience.org and searching in the tab for Sarah's name and then you'll find all of the previous episodes she's been on until next time thank you and goodbye this program was made possible with support from the community broadcasting foundation find out more at cbf.org.au you've been listening to that's what i call science brought to your station and across the nation via the community radio network you can find that's what i call science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team that's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.